Welcome to the 37th episode of Metaco Talks. Today, we're joined by Richard Rosenthal, the principal in Deloitte's advisory practice, where he leads Deloitte's business and entity transformation, integrated services, and also Deloitte's digital assets, banking, regulatory practice. As part of this role, Richard oversees many complex and transformative projects supporting banking, digital assets, and fintech clients to set up new entities, enabling M&A activity, launching digital asset products, and addressing a broad range of regulatory and risk areas to enter and meet expectations of the U.S. banking system. Richard, uh, welcome to Taco Talks. Thank you for having us. I really appreciate it, Seamus. No, it's great having you here. And I think it's certainly well-timed given the topics we're going to dive into. So why don't we get right into it? Um, Richard, you've been at uh, you know Deloitte for, I think, roughly 15 years now. You've helped create banks and payment companies, scale, transform, and uh, merge, sell, and merge and sell those same companies. When and how and why did you become interested in blockchain and digital assets? So a bit of a bit of your journey in this space. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, there's there's probably a bit of a personal and professional angle to this. Um, you know, by doing a lot of the new licensing and, and, and basically helping institutions figure out what charter, who they want to be when they grow up, it became very apparent that there were a lot of product offerings that we're looking at using digital assets as whether it's in payments or there was buy, hold, sell use cases, you know, typical banking clients were starting to come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I want to tokenize cash. I want to do X, Y, and Z. What does it take? Um, and, you know, we have a system that's very complex in the U.S. where New York DFS has a bit license regime, which is probably the most explicit on um, you know, what you need to do to, to, to engage in digital assets. But a lot of these companies... I uh, had a lot of questions on, okay, so if I do this, what does this mean? Do I, you know, how do I deal with my typical banking license, my capital markets activity? And so I thought there was a need to help our clients figure out what expectations, what practices and capabilities did they need to have? And, and frankly, also was really um, personally interested in, in the space. Um, you know, fundamentally was financial services being replatformed? Were we on a paradigm shift here? And And so both led me to kind of dig deep and frankly, kind of formalize a bit of a practice around it. And and the firm Deloitte has been in this space uh, for over 10 plus years. We've been, um, you know, whether it's auditing, providing tax advice, consulting services. So there's a natural business unit and strategy within the firm. And so I kind of built on that and have really focused building that out. So clients can come and say, I want to do this. What does it take? Um, you know, we're borrowing from traditional financial services playbooks, but we're also trying to help clients navigate in increasingly both complex, but, um, you know, it's gotten, uh, you know, a little bit tougher to do some of these things that, that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about today. Good. Well, that, that's a good introduction. So why don't we step back? Because obviously there's a lot of issues today, as you just mentioned, but why don't we step back to, you know, early 2022 before the FTX, before the other failures in the market, before the banks, uh, with the, potentially some of the, the crypto related failures we've seen. What were the banks doing then? What kinds of digital asset transformation projects were you involved with? What use cases? What, was it, what were the business cases? And what was driving those projects back in early 2022? It, it seems that I know we've had a lot of discussions together over the years. It, it seems like a different world. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, did. I, was, I was just reflecting back on it. There was a lot of enthusiasm. There was a lot of momentum. There was a fear of missing out. There was a real question of if you didn't have a strategy were you going to be left behind fundamentally? Was this the way, you know, this simple use case of moving money? Why do I need to pay a wire? You know, can we move it uh, using uh, blockchain rails and save money at instant settlement? Just like that basic, 
use case. Can we tokenize equities and fixed income products and allow us to settle with you know more efficiency than the system today? So I, I felt like you know we were in a new wave. Uh, if, if maybe the previous wave was 2017 or 16, where there was a lot of energy enthusiasm, we were in that period. And you know what reflected that was an executive order from the Biden administration, which had the whole of government saying, hey, we need to really look at the promise of digital assets and blockchain technology. And the tone was really positive. And if I look at the range of players that we're looking at engaging, it was not just your let's call it more innovative financial institutions, but it was the traditional ones that you would say, oh, wow, they're really investing a team. They're taking time. And um, yeah, they're really working through it. Now, we also had a landscape where we, had a, we, we didn't have a lot of clarity from a regulatory perspective of what was permissible or what wasn't permissible. We had also a landscape where non-banks were uh, you know, probably leading the pack in terms of innovation and they were launching a lot of the products that we're talking about, the buy, hold, sell, the, um, the custody products, the um, tokenized cash products. So in general, I think the more regulated institutions were maybe a little bit behind, but trying to engage. And frankly, were very, you know, they were developing their strategies. So I, I don't know if you, you feel the same, but it felt like it was um, a really exciting um, you know, dynamic. And we were seeing a lot of interesting projects where help me figure out who I want to be when I grow up, you know? I, I, I think very much. I mean, it's funny because I remember some discussions early 2022 around actually with one of the large money center banks that was actually concerned about losing deposit base, just given the note, particularly with all the staking yields elsewhere. <laughs> and now how that has changed basically, right? It's a uh, money's fleeing that sector all the way back. I think you're spot on. I think um, I'm glad you brought that up. It was a defense. It was a potentially also defensive strategy to say there's going to be certain businesses that expect 24 by 7 settlement or I need to offer a buy, hold, sell product because my clients are asking for it and I may lose assets under management or I may lose deposits. I think you're absolutely right. It was a, hey, are we we going to be able to compete? Yeah. So it's like a perfect storm, as you said, of Defend, defend, building some defensive moats, or at least responding defensively, and the, the fear of missing out. And you know, where what are we going to be in this space? Perfect environment for both our firms, actually, in this space. So, but you know, you mentioned the the lack of clarity. Now, you know, I think that's obviously on sorry, lack of clarity on the regulatory side. Now, how would you describe the U.S. regulatory situation today? Are things clearer? I mean, a bit rhetorical, but but are things clearer yeah. now? I think and we're, we're, we're having more of a U.S.-centric conversation. I think in some jurisdictions, things have gotten clearer. I think the MICA bill has gotten through uh, a lot of the European legislative process. In the U.S., we had hopes coming from that backdrop of maybe having some legislation or rulemaking that was more clear. I think we've had from each of the regulators, and we have something like five banking regulators, 50 state regulators, you know, we have the SEC, the CFTC. We have a complexity here that, as you know, is 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 a lot makes it challenging. We've had some guidance that says here are things that you can do and can't do from the banking regulators. I think we've seen some clarification. Like you might remember, they had some guidance on stable coins and custody products. You know, you know, banking institutions are custodians, so we've heard some guidance to say, hey, they they can be custodians, and there's some things that they can do. So that's on the good side. But then we've had some a lot of enforcement actions, and we haven't had much rulemaking on major questions like what's a security, 
Um, what's the jurisdiction of regulators on on things like um, there's been a lot of debates on Ethereum, Bitcoin, and what are the rules for an exchange? What are the rules for a stable coin? When can I issue or not issue? What are risk management capabilities I need if I want to be a digital asset custodian? So it's not like we have, um, we've broken through that kind of morass and we've got that, you know, let's call it uh, the things that are that, that regulators are comfortable with and not. We don't have that systemically. In some cases, we have some um, potentially um, conflicting or hard to wrap your head around guidance. You might have, I think we've talked about SAB 121, which um, would force some institutions to basically, um, you know, hold uh, custody client assets on balance sheet, which would then have cl- uh, capital impacts for banks. So, you know, I think we, you know, we, we, we've probably not gotten much more clarity in, in some, if I just summed up the whole picture, we through enforcement actions and through some of this guidance, we can start piecing together a puzzle of what looks to be things that are going to be permissible or not, but it's not the most straightforward answer. And it's, 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 um, I think Congress uh, and others would feel we haven't necessarily provided a framework of sorts. And there are bills we can talk about that are still floating around Congress to potentially hope, you know, uh, address some of this, but we're, we're not probably in a better place, maybe a slightly worse place, to be frank. It's interesting you mentioned you started by bifurcating basically the U.S. versus everywhere else because I mean what we have seen post at least on our side from a client perspective post let's say FTX if I use that as a big benchmark is actually a flight to quality from those let's say banks that involve digital assets crypto etc they've seen more and more assets move towards them given they're safe they're regulated they're well known um, they have balance sheet in the end basically so but in the U.S. that what what is the situation in the U.S. is is that lack of clarity and the concern about the asset class has it changed the way banks are looking at investing in this space or what how are their plans uh, in the face of this ambiguity and basically the con- increasing regulatory concern? You've seen some public some 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 bank CEOs some large bank CEOs very publicly say we still believe the technology is really going to provide meaningful benefits. I mean they're they're. There's been a debate. Uh, there's been some papers and things debating what's truly the utility. Right. I think you would probably agree with this: is that digital assets and distributed ledger technology are really good at things. They're not. It's not everything. There are other technologies that, if you look at an end-to-end process that you would deploy, but there are real benefits in in reducing um, and trusting information, so reducing the number of people that have to validate information. You know, digitizing assets that don't have a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of you know, real utility. And I think you've seen some people in large banks say, yeah, here's the use cases, here's the benefits, here's why we still believe in it. So I think for those institutions, regardless of it's not necessarily maybe the best regulatory climate, um, maybe they view it as an opportunity as well, because they can actually catch up to maybe non-banks for a little bit ahead of them in development. But maybe a trusted pair of hands is what's needed also to engage in some of these use cases. So I don't think people are saying, Hey, we're not going to invest in teams in in looking at strategies into platforms and products. I think they recognize there's a short-term challenge in maybe launching some of these things that it's hard to maybe put the pedal to the metal. Um, But I think you're looking at these U.S.-based institutions still exploring, defining, building muscle memory. Um, I do think if they're global and they operate in 10 or 20 countries or 100 countries, they might be looking at countries like Singapore or Brazil or Israel or the UK and Europe to maybe pilot some of those products, or maybe they can 
um, launch, maybe their launch pilot strategy changes. Maybe they, if they've got a legislative regulatory framework in place, I, I think recently we saw a uh, European bank launch like a stable coin or something uh, in Europe. So I think you're going to see that, yeah. um, if that makes sense. I, absolutely. I think, as you said, we're already seen that. I mean, Stockton recently launched that, that, that stable coin in Europe. So, um, but looking at the, you mentioned the uh, you know, five regulators, OCC being one of the, the, the big ones in the US. What are their motivations here? What are their main concerns when they look at the space? And to the degree, you know, there are banks, as you said, innovating outside of outside outside the US. The European bank you mentioned do in a stable coin. To what degree then does these concerns limit an American bank, which is a global bank, doing the same thing elsewhere? Because are, aren't they still subject to the same regulatory um, reporting or, or, or a, a approval? And maybe in place from the U.S. regulators. I think one of the fair challenges, which I have some sympathy for, and I, I, I would ask the same thing, is what really use case and strategy are you trying to solve? What value are you adding to your customer base? Are you doing something that's going to save them money? Are you offering them a product that there's no liquidity in? Are you doing something that is just going to be... So let's go back to our first comment, the FOMO. It's never good to chase something without actually really having a business strategy. So I think the first thing the regulator is asking is, is it really make sense? And can you tell me, like prove to me, like classic business planning, that this is a real market that has utility? I think once you get from that point, I think they're then saying, show me you've actually done your homework. The diligence on vendors, the diligence on the risks, the diligence, you can't just take a third-party risk management policy or an approach to diligence and just apply it to digital assets and blockchain technology. As you know, and I know, depending on what blockchain you're interacting with, depending on the smart contract infrastructure, depending on the key management and the cryptography of the custodian, all of that changes the analysis. And so they're really looking for companies to say, um, show me the homework, show me the diligence in the unique novel way. And if you can't answer those first two questions, they're going to start saying, are you wasting time? Um, are you just chasing something that you're not good at? Do you have the right people and capability to do that? I think recently in the recent market events that we saw with with SBB, another probably not helpful um, if taken together, if you look at some of the recent bank failures, they'll also say we're, because it, it's really not a digital asset product, but a lot of these banking organizations were banking crypto and digital asset companies. Yeah. And so the liquidity, those deposits, that same first debate we had, those deposits that you gained, were those hot, was, it, was that hot money? Were those really sustainable? Were you managing, what they don't want to see is you launch a product and then all of a sudden the core safety and soundness, the core mission of a bank of protecting customer money is now at risk. If for somehow you jeopardize that fundamental, the reason you're on the, uh, on this planet, I think they were really taken aback by some of that. And so- you have to kind of step through some of those questions, demonstrate the thoughtfulness, the answers. And in, in some cases, I think the hope is that you'll get some of those um, products and businesses over the line. Likely in the near term, it's challenging. But going back to the other question you asked, if I'm a global organization and I have a banking subsidiary, um, I'm a non-U.S. institution. So I'm a foreign bank operating in the U.S. I have a bank in the U.S. and I have a bank in Europe. Um, the consolidated regulator isn't the Fed or the OCC, it's the European regulator. And in that legal entity in Europe, they might have a little bit of an advantage in launching something in Europe where a U.S. domiciled institution that's regulated by the Fed at the consolidated level 
uh, to your point, I think your instincts are right to say, you know, new product launches, new product approvals. There's still a dynamic where the U.S. regulator leans on the European regulator and, and there's there's a primary supervision that the European regulator has. But we basically have an uneven playing field, which is, I think what your, your question is getting to is that depending on your setup, depending on what entities you are uh, and, and countries you're in, you might have a different capability to launch some of these products. I, I like the, um, I'm quite sympathetic. And I think it's quite optimistic to look at, to frame the, the motivations between, behind the, of the U.S. regulators around the idea that it's not necessarily specific, specifically look at asset class, but look at how the asset class has been introduced into the banking system. So, as, you know, too often we've heard it's handled almost like a science project outside the normal vendor risk management, outside the normal risk processes. And as we've seen with, you know, some of these banks outside their, you know, the basic, uh, you know, asset liability, or if they had any asset liability, liquidity risk management processes. So um, clearly that isn't a digital asset thing. Those are basically traditional sort of risk management approaches that weren't actually applied. So it's, I think it's quite optimistic to think if the ba banks do think about this in, in a holistic way across all their risk parameters, then the regulators could be supportive. I think that would be a nice long-term way to look at this space and a much safer space for all of us then. And I think that's the work we have to do as an industry group is um, really take those, you know, the risk and control uh, self-assessment processes, the vendor risk management processes, and really think about how they should be applied. It is, um, um, you know, it, it is a, 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 in theory, you know, it is an asset class of sorts, but it has to be integrated and still, in that example we went through, it's a client being onboarded that you're banking, um, and so you're you're still doing a lot of the typical onboarding risk management processes that you need to. You still need to do asset liability management. You still need to do all those things, and that has nothing to do with digital assets or the unique elements of of, of, uh, of crypto. So I think you're spot on with that. Great point. So to the degree, it, as you mentioned, this is potentially creating an unlevel playing field. To what degree do you think the U.S. regulators are? maybe reaching out to offshore regulators to influence them so there isn't a competitive disadvantage at that. You know, it's interesting. There are some global bodies like the BIS, BCBS, that try to look at um, where global regulators sit on, um, uh, you know, kind of forums and committees and try to come up mm. with, let's call it, uh, top of the house principles and standards that should be cascaded to other, um, uh, you know, countries and regulators. And CPS, IOSCO, the securities um, infrastructure uh, body also puts out principles. And I and you actually did see some momentum where they started to come up at the BIS, I believe, put out a framework on classification of digital assets and maybe some capital impacts of those things. And the OCC, you know, and the banking regulators sit on, the U.S. banking regulators sit on that. So, in some respects, I think the the battleground there is those bodies. Now, that's not mandatory. A country could still decide to opt in or implement some of that. But that intellectual process of coming up with what are the risks, what are the controls, how is capital uh, get risk weighted, um, I think is where a lot of the influences is is happening. Where um, you know, and and I think regulators do have other bilateral forums where they're sharing ideas um, and working through what, you know, th there's also the AML, the FATF, there's a whole body there. So I think you're seeing a lot of that happen. Um, and it's, uh, it, you know, I, I think one other point to make is when you're dealing with U.S. persons, which I think the U.S. regulators like to mind you, remind people of, then the perimeter extends. 
Um, and so you could be domiciled, you know, wherever you want, but there are certain obligations that deal that that you controls AML expectations that when you're engaging with a uh, with U.S. persons, even licensing implications. So um, I think that's a stick that the U.S. regulators also have. So even if you decided to redomicile, is there other impacts and considerations there too? Um, so you know, they also, as you know, show up to a lot of conferences and events. Seamus, and I think they try in those platforms to try to put out, you know, their expectations and speeches and things. And they like to, I think they also have these innovation offices where you can come talk to them, but it's a lot of, feels like a little bit like whack-a-mole. Great point. So, so, you know, going back to your point that the regulators just want to see better risk practices, but effectively the main motivation is, is likely to get better risk practices put in place. Um, if we think back, look at the U.S. in specific, um, you know, how, how well do you think the U.S. banks are navigating this, this let's say, new need or basically a need that maybe didn't recognize that was quite as significant as it was? And will, just, will it just be at the, the largest U.S. banks that will be allowed to service digital assets? You know, what about the bid market? I mean, we've obviously seen some of the community regulators get a bit more cautious as well. Um, can new digital asset banks actually be created as well in this space from scratch? So you have um, actually one of the more, more active spaces in the U.S., is credit unions, and it's one of the um, uh, the NCOA is a regulator that has responsibility for credit unions, and credit unions have a basically um, a mission to serve their community, some binding mission that you can offer banking products. And the credit union space has actually been, if you look at, there was a recent FDIC uh, study in terms of the number of banks that were actually engaging or had interest in engaging in digital assets. I think the number was uh, one, you know, 130 in the U.S. or something like 5,000 banks. Um, those are both directional numbers, but there are banks that are actually offering products or engaging in the space in the U.S. And if you look at um, the credit union space, there's actually probably a pretty high proportionality there. Why is that the case? Well, they they had put out some guidance and had been generally more receptive to um, some of the benefits of distributed ledger technology and were allowing banks, you know, with the proper controls and things to engage. Um and so I would just put that out there that, again, it comes back to that federal banking regulator comment. It depends on who your regulator is, what your charter is, what your relationship is. It is very bilateral. It is very much, there's not like, if I make an analogy in the US, we have a process for M&A and licensing when you set up a new bank or you do a merger, there's a, an application, there's a business plan, and there's a statutory process you go through. Let's also compare that to the New York DFS. They have a bid license and a process that you apply to. For a bank that is trying to do something, there is not that defined glide path. So, you know, it's kind of like it depends. So what hap what's happening? Well, you know, if I were advising clients or we were working through things together and, and we have law firm partners that do this as well, is you're borrowing from that licensing playbook to say, this is typically what a business plan includes. And given there, there is a level of nervousness and uh, trepidation about these products, let's really lay out the business plan. Let's lay out the pro forma, the revenues, the expenses, how we're going to manage the product. Let's lay out our value prop. Then let's lay out risk management and compliance and controls practices. Let's treat this as a new business line, uh, maybe not a full entity. And I think that approach has worked a lot better for institutions. 
So allowing the regulators to really sink their teeth into the full-throated end-to-end business model. And that would include how I'm updating my policies, what new people am I hiring, what training am I doing, what vendors like, you know, Metaco that I'm using that actually have, you know, expertise and capability in this space. And I think that is that end-to-end view, then coming and answering the question, this is really aligned to our strategy. And this is fundamentally what we want to do. That's all happening bilaterally. That's all happening, um, you know, in back and forth conversations. Uh, there's not a playbook. There's not an explicit checklist um, to go through. And um, so that's the work that we're engaged in. That's the work banking organizations that feel very strongly about still having a capability set in here are navigating. So fascinating. So does, are those bilateral discussions still ongoing? Are the banks still building in the space despite all these headwinds we've talked about? Yes. But I think you also have to keep in mind um, they're very cognizant of the recent liquidity and market event that we're going through. And, um, you know, depending on the bank's balance sheet strength and, and um, you know, positioning coming out of these recent market events, I, I think they're also facing this near-term pressure of reassuring their customer base that deposits are safe and the bank is strong. Regulators are asking questions on things like interest rate risk management, liquidity management. And so they're they're kind of in this... Um, you know, these recent market events have forced them to, you know, make sure the the core banking franchise is solid. But I still, you know, there are strategic initiatives. Some are saying this is an opportunity. Maybe we can make an acquisition. Maybe we can, um, you know, keep building this product capability. And so I think some see it as an opportunity. In fact, um, you know, both the crypto failures and the market events have maybe bought some time for some, at least in the U.S., uh, you know, the, Europe and, and APAC and others are not slowing down. So, you know, every day I think both of us see uh, pilot product launches and things that are going on. So at least within the U.S. sphere, um, there might be an opportunity to play some catch up. I mean, that's definitely seems to be very real. I remember I had many discussions with U.S. banks that just couldn't hire, they just couldn't hire teams, people, basically, with just basic human resources were a basic constraint on growth in this space. That obviously is eased up a bit. Um, so that's good. Banks and DLT teams, DLT teams are still building digital asset capabilities, maybe with less uh, public fanfare. But you know, where, where are they focusing? I mean, as you say, the, the landscape's changed a bit uh, given the concerns about liquidity, et cetera. Uh, well, has that impacted the different type of use cases they're looking at? Yeah, I know. I think it's it's been it's been a pretty it's been a pretty material shift. There was a. A real focus, I think, on uh, back when we we first started talking about that enthusiasm period, where the buy, hold, sell, mm. crypto capability was a little bit more front and center. Yeah, clients, it was there a, uh, and this was the whole defensive thing: were people taking money out of their brokerage accounts and bank accounts and moving it to exchanges and buying uh, crypto, including stable coins. Um, and so you needed a defensive offering there, which is part of the conversation we had. But there were, in that time period, there were others that were still looking at broader, um, settlements, you know, uh, you know, whether it's repo, reverse repo, moving money, tokenizing cash, moving money between banks. There was still that going on, but that was, you know, happening in the backdrop. That's, that's kind of flipped. I think front and center, it's been about, you know, what can we digitize 
and tokenize, that's going to create more efficiency for moving value, whether that's mortgages, mortgage servicing rights, fixed income products, deposits in cash. Um, you know, I still think there's some focus on do stable coins play a role in this ecosystem? Is that a, a payment utility that we need to look at? Um, so to me, it's shifted more towards is custody going to be a commoditized capability that everybody needs to have? Because if everything's digitized, um, who's holding those assets? And what are, what are the ecosystems and use cases for taking those individual products and really trying to create value? And each of those products has a different set of challenges, you know, or things you have to work through with mortgages. The challenges are different than, than fixed income and equities products. And so I think that's the work that's going on right now. Some of it's happening in consortiums. Some of it, our banks are going, uh, working with a couple of banks and saying, hey, let's do this. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is, um, you know, digital asset custody seems to be a core uh, infrastructure capability that's going to be needed, um, you know, on this kind of trajectory that we're talking about. So that that is why I think, you know, we're both seeing a lot of conversations around that. The other thing I would say is I thought, you know, one of the things my personal view is uh, that maybe, at least in the U.S., we would have saw stable coins uh, move up in the um, because every you know, there's a lot of work to be done on central bank digital currencies and digital dollars and all this stuff. Was there room for stable coins to grow in in that void? Um, and it, and one of the bills in Congress in the U.S. was a stable coin bill that would clarify who could issue stable coins, including non banks. And imagine if you had some legislative clarity on stable coins and a regulation that said this is what you need to do. You would probably see a lot of financial institutions, um, you know, really launch those. And so I would have told you, Seamus, that we would have saw uh, that be pretty prominent, the cross-border payment capability. Yeah, you could really see benefits in the financial system, um, you know, potentially uh, for people if we had a, a trusted stablecoin issuance framework, a regulator that said, okay, this is what, you know, beyond just what exists today. Um, but we're, we're still waiting for that. Um, so I, I don't know um, if, if your take is similar to what you're seeing, but I think things have kind of flipped. A lot more focus on digital assets, custody capabilities, tokenization of things uh, versus the buy, hold, sell, core, core crypto uh, you know, capability set. I mean, 100% a lot aligned. I mean, I think we used to have a refrain that you know the, the, the opportunity a firm could, could monetize today was that buy, hold, you know, cryptocurrency on ramps, off ramps, basically, because it's, it was there, basically, clients didn't demand it. And then effectively, the tokenization opportunity was for free because it was the rest of the, the same underlying technology could be used to tokenize when it was the same. <laughs> now it's basically built for tokenization. And when crypto is allowed again, you, you get that for free later on. It's optionality in that space. Um, so it's, it's, it's flipped around a little bit. The difficulty, of course, is tokenization is uh, not just about technology, basically, right? There's, the team sport, you need secondary markets, you need liquidity for these things. Stable coins seem to be the easiest way, easiest place probably to start. Just, what's your view in terms of the, um, you know, given some of the legislations in place, how the, the stable coin space will evolve? I mean, what we have right now is very much a stable coin backed by deposits. And there's a lot of obviously talk from the banks around tokenized deposits. Is there a view on how those two things will, will intersect, if at all? 
Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's there's projects and initiatives like RLN, where um, you know there's work going underway in the U.S. Um, to try to look at, well, okay, how could um, tokenized cash work? How could um, wholesale large dollar movements work amongst banks? Um, and and that is still in kind of the exploration and, and kind of innovation mode. Um, but but there is some you know momentum building there, and I think you know we have to, you know I think one of the things your comment or question kind of leads me down a path of is there's not really clear explanation or view in the U.S. is what does the payment system offer today? And the Fed is introducing something called Fed Now. So yep. and people talk about Zelle. Okay, what what payment capabilities exist domestically in the U.S. Uh, and where will we be? In, in a year, and actually, the Fed just released FAQs on Fed Now versus their work on central bank digital currencies because I think there was some confusion, which is I think a good um, takeaway for for some folks. But that Fed Now doesn't solve everything. Um, it still doesn't deal with the cross border large value transfer. There's some things that you couldn't necessarily do with Fed Now, but it it really does move the the U.S. payment system in a direction of more real time payments. Um, Stable coins, as you know, are, um, you know, uh, without kind of a wholesale central bank digital currency or some digital dollar or tokenized cash, um, offer the benefits of using blockchain rails to move money. And we're seeing a lot of yeah. retail customers with their exchange wallets send money home to other countries cross-border The and, and also use it for DeFi and trading and collateral and whatever they're using it for. And those... Uh, you know those those market caps have, have have kind of ebbed and flowed, but largely we have not. You know some corridors of money movement today we're using wires. You haven't completely disintermediated the existing yeah. payment rails. You see in some corridors, I was seeing some Mexico, U.S., where you're seeing actually some of the remittances start to use stablecoin rails. So if we if we my personal view is it's going to take some time on digital cash. The U.S. banks, there was an initiative in the U.S. Eight banks got together to try to do something with tokenized cash. That didn't really, uh, that has not progressed. Um, and and so you're either left in this place of private permissioned movement of cash in a closed loop ecosystem. Um, stable coins, which are more happening on a retail basis outside of the bank purview. The exploration of central bank digital currencies. And so there's kind of this void. So if we had a stablecoin bill coming back to your question full circle, and we said non-banks and banks can issue them, you know, I, 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 my personal view is we would have seen some competition to the big issuers today okay. of some more traditional financial services, household names, issuing stablecoins, largely backed by dollars, largely mirroring the New York Department of Financial Services views on, um, you know, what really can back a dollar or back a coin. Sorry. So, uh, yeah, that's mostly going to be, you know, cash and, um, you know, high quality government, yep. uh, treasuries, things like that. Um, and so we would have probably seen them, uh, in people's wallets. Um, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I think that would have been a, and still is. If you look at the the three bills floating around, there was uh, the stablecoin bill got reposted by the House Financial Services. Um, uh, Maxine Waters and the Democrats basically recently said times have shifted. 
things have changed. We need to relook at that bill. And they have proposed some changes. That literally happened, I think, yesterday. So um, it is still, um, I would say, the the best chance um, uh, of getting something uh, that would then force some regulatory clarity. Um, and, and I think the other point to make here is the reason probably regulators and, and leg- legislators feel so strongly is in the recent market events, we actually saw, because the dollars backed by the stablecoin are at banks, and if those banks fail or under pressure, you could have a run on a stablecoin that creates a systemic risk event in the U.S. And I don't think, you know, some people are talking about that. And I think that institutions without the banking system did a fairly good job of managing through those events. But those are dollars. Those are people's monies. Those are retail customers holding on to what they believe is backed by a dollar. And so I believe, uh, you know, there's still a need uh, uh, to get some clarity on who should issue, what are the controls. You know, it goes back to our first comment, regulatory clarity. Each of these products and services need that framework. I think think it's a great point because, as you say, without the clarity, I guess the consumer doesn't really know what risk they face. I mean, people talked to stablecoins, there was issue or risk, but it turns out, as you said, who's the custodian probably matters even more, as we saw recently, basically, right? Um, and I, I think this is definitely the killer app to get the rest of the tokenization space moving. We do need some tokenized form of uh, this settlement, like basically. Right? So I think this is obviously the the key to unlock the rest. Um, you know, leaving aside kind of some of the regulatory and liquidity discussions, you know, what what are some of the other challenges you see that banks are facing when they try to move into the space, and how do they navigate those? You know, techno let's think um, you know, technology wise, cultural, etc. Yeah, I think. Um... I think there's probably two that I would probably point out. One is sometimes you, you see this, this is a technology searching for a problem. And so when you get down to the business value prop, you get down to discussion, you look at pros and cons and benefits and costs, and you start modeling out um, what are the expenses to launch this product, um, and then what are the benefits I'm getting, whether that's, um, you know, reduction of payments fees or a customer intangible benefit or it improves the the value of the relationship, whatever it is, once you get down that path and you start doing pilots, if that front business case wasn't strong enough or you didn't have organizational alignment, I've seen some people lose momentum and stall um, on that on a product journey. And whether it was market events or regulatory events or a change in leadership, um, they've lost the commitment to that muscle memory, to that that initiative. Um, Because it takes probably some upfront investment of time and energy, not just cost, but you're really spending mental capacity thinking about how you want to do that. And so it's it's both in, and I guess what I'm saying is a, is the technology, is it the real the best of the technology. And I think now how to feel really strongly about that. Um, and you got to have some data. And I think we're getting, with all the pilots that have gone on and some public, some have failed, some have been successful. Um, you hear a lot of the, you hear some negative, you hear some positive. Like, hey, distributed ledger is really good at tracking supply chain. Hey, you know, can it be successful in an exchange settlement capacity? Does it have enough throughput? Hey, what are, what's really the benefit in tokenized cash? Like, and I think the industry's gotten better about really being focused and demonstrating that, um, yeah, okay, we're going to walk before we run. We're really going to have a clear view on benefits. 
Um, you know, so that's one. Two is sometimes it takes an ecosystem. It's not just you that doing the project. You might need that the the you know the end to end whether it's the investors, the you know whatever market you're in. There's multiple sides of that product, and sometimes people want to deal in traditional financial services, or we have traditional processes like you know the way we in mortgages, the way we do titles, the way we store mortgages, you know, information government agencies that like to see information a certain way. So I see a lot of focus on crafting these solutions in context of not trying to create too much friction for adoption. And how do you really see the benefits of some of this? You have to almost create these ecosystems where there's enough people participating so there's enough liquidity. There's enough and and that like who's creating those ecosystems? Who's creating that work? Um and so a lot of institutions have taken leadership roles in trying to do that. And that's where you see these groups forming up. Um, so I, I think that's that's the other challenge. And may, maybe sometimes also, you know, it's not just reg, but legal, bankruptcy, settlement, laws. Sometimes we need these things to also be aligned or reflect bankruptcy law. You know, I see we see a lot about settlement finality. You know, and so, so you, know, you see a lot of white papers and focus on how some of this needs to shift as well. So it's honestly a little bit less about the technology and capability and more about how this works in traditional financial services and how we get adoption. I don't know if you share you share the same take. Totally. I think you've nailed some key points. I mean, as you say, it's blockchain's a team sport for this to work, basically, right? It's not just one firm doing this on their own. Otherwise, just use a database. Um, you know, clearly the uh, ambiguity around things like, you know, are things bankruptcy remote are so fundamental and when everything was going up left bottom left to the upper right nobody cared now these things matter oh they always mattered basically just people didn't pay attention you know we, we've spoken a lot about banks um but obviously in the introduction you know your practice isn't just banks you, you know you work on setting up entities with fintech um, digital native space you enable m a um you enable to launch into digital asset products what are you seeing outside of banks how is the this tough regulatory environment affecting um you know, we've talked about how it affects banks. How does it affect the rest of the market or other opportunities then? Yeah, it comes back to that first point we talked about, which is kind of depending on the ent entity and how you're regulated kind of changes what you can do and how much freedom you have. So if you're a broker-dealer, um, you know, the broker-dealer regulators haven't really updated their views on, um, you know, capital and segregation of assets. But if you're a payments company and you're a money transmitter and you're not a broker-dealer, you're not a bank, and maybe you operate with a a trust entity which is designed to custody assets or you have a money transmission payments company, you've had probably more freedom. You've had the ability to, you're now in the, you're not at the banking regulatory framework, you're in the state money transmission framework. And you're generally dealing with, um, you're generally using your money transmission license, which has AML requirements. Yep. Um, uh, but... And then you have the New York DFS, which has been the regulator that's put the most explicit guidance out there. So you largely, you need to get a, a, a bit license if you're engaged in, in virtual assets. And you're working through our, this conversation we're having, you're working through a regulator that believes it has the tools to care for the risks associated with digital assets. And so you're doing more. You might have a stablecoin project sitting on your shelf. You might have a custody um, you know, capability that you want to get done. Um, and so there, 
And you still might need to, you know, engage with the banking regulators because the trust entity requires, in some cases, if you're a national trust, you need uh, OCC uh, approval. But you're you're probably you've got a little bit of an edge right now. Um, you're now, but you're also having to keep in mind that uh, the SEC and others are kind of looking at activity, regardless of uh, where it takes place. Um, and so you're kind of just constantly looking at these different regulators and what they're putting out there, but it's probably been uh, a space where you've been able to get more done. And we see that a lot of the big stablecoin issuers, a lot of the big uh, crypto custodians, digital asset custodians, they're not banks. Uh, they are operating in the, the state trust and money transmission space to offer those products. Um, and so that's where a lot of the innovation and product development is happening. It is they're still up against though a, a very uh, increasingly more enforcement-minded regulator. Regulator, Richard, I think unfortunately we're coming up to time, so it's been. I, I think we can continue going down many different avenues in this discussion. But listen, it's been great discussing things with you. But I think as a you know, just to wrap things up, what's next for you? You know, for Deloitte, your practice. Um, you know, how can you know with how can you help banks with everything that has been discussed? How can Deloitte help bank with banks with everything that we are. Yeah, I think as you are, we're we're playing the long and medium term game here where we have a global practice, a dedicated blockchain and digital assets practice, and we are investing heavily in in helping clients figure out how to engage with digital assets. And that includes with regulators, with banks, and that hasn't changed. So what's next? We're going to continue working through these issues, defining the playbooks, helping clients launch these products, and very, very much akin to the bank CEO comments. We, we believe there's utility and a role for, for blockchain and digital assets, and our practice is going to help clients do that. And so I hope to be part of the conversation on what are those capabilities? What does good look like? Um, and I know you're doing the same, so I appreciate your, your, your leadership as well. Richard, it's been super having you on, and I really appreciate you sharing your, your insights and incredible knowledge in this space. Um, thanks for joining today. Take care. I wish you a great day. Great. Thanks, Richard. Um, to our guests, Thanks again for joining and do follow our website. As, as always, we'll upload the recording after this and, and this transcript of the conversation to metaco.com um, and also, again, available on all your favorite podcast channels. In the meantime, please let us know if you have any feedback on this episode or in the general format of the show or what speakers you want to see featured here. We'd love to hear feedback. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.